Well, this summer we have been studying the topic of faith, and we've been examining passages in the Gospels where Jesus commends people's faith or he teaches about faith. And uh, what we've, we've seen at the core of it is that faith moves the hand of God. Faith moves the hand of God. So, for example, we looked in Luke 7 where the centurion had this great faith. He actually believed Jesus had so much authority that all he had to do was say the word and his servant would be healed. He didn't even have to come in person, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus' evaluation of that man is that he was a man who had great faith. He had a type of faith that Jesus hadn't even found in all of Israel. And so, Faith moves the hand of God, and we hope that these messages have really kind of raised your vision and given you a, a renewed vision for what your faith can and actually should be like. But there will inevitably be times when we experience great discouragement and when we uh, feel like we're a complete failure spiritually. And it could be for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's our own sin. I don't know if you ever thought this, but you you might have wondered, does my sin disqualify me from really having great faith? Or maybe it's your circumstances and you think, I wonder if God's punishing me because I don't have enough faith. And so for a variety of different reasons, we can have this discouragement and these, these questions. In other words, you and I at times find ourselves in the exact same situation as Jesus' disciples the night before Jesus was crucified. In other words, you and I need to hear the exact same thing that Jesus told his disciples that night. And so today, as we wrap up our series on faith, we're going to look at the last few verses in John chapter 16. And this is a a passage that assures us that Jesus is not surprised by our lack of faith. And Jesus is not shocked at the way we sin. And Jesus doesn't send us these horrible circumstances to punish us. What I'm saying is all these things we experience, instead of pushing us farther away from God, these are situations that should cause us to draw closer to God to develop a deeper and more mature type of faith. This exchange between Jesus and his disciples is recorded in John 16. It occurred in the upper room, which was this, this room that they borrowed, and it was on the night that Jesus was arrested. It was the night before his crucifixion. And when you think about it, Jesus said all sorts of things that the disciples just couldn't understand. They just didn't get what he said. It was very opaque many times, and, and they were just confused. But on this night, Jesus said some things specifically that became very clear. And in that, that moment of clarity, Jesus' disciples professed their faith in Jesus. They, they professed this to him in John 16, verses 29 and 30. His disciples said, Lo, now you, Jesus, are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And so they declared their faith in a, in a couple of different ways. Number one, they said, we, we now know that you know all things. And so this was this confession. We believe you have this exhaustive knowledge of the world and of our lives. And actually, Jesus knew a lot more than they realized because in a, few, in a couple of verses, he's going to say, I actually know that you're going to fail. You're going to scatter instead of staying with me. So first of all, he said, we believe you know all things, and we believe that you came from the Father. And this is something Jesus had tried to tell them over and over. They'd say, show us the Father. And Jesus would say, 
how have you been with me so long and you don't believe me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so here they come to this, this conviction, this conclusion. We now believe, Jesus, that you came from the Father. You perfectly show us the character and the glory of the Father. Verse 31 is Jesus' response, and it's probably something of a mild rebuke to the disciples. In response to their statement, we believe, Jesus answered them and said, do you? Do you now? Do you now believe? And he's not denying that they have faith. Uh, They did believe, but he wants them to see that their faith is limited and their faith is inadequate for what they would face in the future. Their faith needed to grow and mature. And every single one of us in this room is in the exact same place. Our faith needs to grow and mature. I suspect that most of us here today have this foundational saving faith. We would say something very similar to what the disciples did. Jesus, we believe that you know all things. Jesus, we believe you came from the Father. And we believe that when you died on the cross, you died for all our, our sins. And when you were raised from the dead, that God declared that you were indeed the Son of God and that your death accomplished what you said it accomplished. If you confess that, if you actually believe that, you have this foundational saving faith. But what you need to understand is that you need a deeper faith. Your faith continually needs to grow and deepen in light of what you're going to face in the future. Uh, Our faith shouldn't be stagnant. It should continue to get deeper. And this is true whether you have believed in Jesus for a week or a decade or half a century. Your faith needs to grow and it needs to deepen. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he knew that their faith was inadequate so that they wouldn't give up before they matured in their faith. And so in the last two verses of John 16, we, we find two foundational truths. And the first, in verse 32, is that Jesus understands our weaknesses and failures in this world. In this verse, Jesus gives a very sober assessment of the disciples' spiritual strength. Uh, even though they had faith, He tells them, you're not going to stay close to me at the time when I need it the most. And this is what he says. He says, you will defect temporarily, but you will defect. He says, behold, an hour is coming and it's already come. It was that very night for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. Now, why would Jesus say that to them? Well, Jesus wasn't being unkind. He wasn't being pessimistic, and he wasn't setting them up so he could later tell them, I told you so. I told you this would happen. No, he he understood the disciples needed to know that he already knew about their failure. He knew that they would scatter before it even happened so that when it happened, they would realize Jesus loves me anyway. Jesus died for me anyway, even though I wasn't faithful to him. My faith wasn't strong enough. And so Jesus, at the end of verse 32, he adds that that he's not alone in an absolute sense because the Father is with me. And the Father would accompany him uh, throughout his, his trial, his arrest, his torture, and he would accompany him to the cross to fulfill his mission. C.H. Dodd made this statement about the first disciples. He says, it is part, and I find great comfort in this. C.H. Dodd said, it is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundational members were discredited men. 
The church owed its existence not to their faith, not to their courage, not to their virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. The fact of the matter is, is that their failures didn't disqualify them. Their failures made them more dependent upon Jesus and upon his work on their behalf. When their faith failed, when they scattered, instead of giving up, they understood they needed to come back to Jesus. They needed to grow and deepen and mature in their faith. And it was true for all of them, but, but perhaps it was especially true about Peter, probably because he was the most vocal. He's the one that said, Jesus, everybody else may leave you, but I never will. Jesus, I will die with you. And to that, Jesus declared, informed him in John thirteen thirty eight. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And you remember what happened. Peter denied Jesus three times. The rooster crowed. Peter made eye contact with Jesus, who was under arrest. And it says in Luke 22 that Peter wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. But his failure didn't, didn't uh, destroy him the way it did Judas. It humbled him. Jesus had told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, this is ahead of time, he told him, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so surely Peter would have remembered, Jesus, he knew I was going to uh, betray him, and he provided for that. He prayed for me, and when he turned back again, he had to understand for somehow, even his failure was part of Jesus' curriculum for his life. No failure, no weakness took Jesus by surprise. Would you marry somebody if you knew ahead of time they were going to be unfaithful to you? Probably not, right? Well, in essence, we as the bride of Christ, Jesus knew that we were going to be unfaithful to him, and he died for us anyway. He invited us into this relationship with him. And we find these assurances about how God knows us. He knows us and loves us anyway. Psalm 103, we're told, the Lord knows our frame. He understands our weakness, our frailty, that we live in these these weak flesh and blood bodies. He said he is mindful that we are but dust. In uh, the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, we read this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So rest assured, if you ever thought, Jesus can't relate to me, he just really doesn't understand my weaknesses, my temptations, and you know, your temptations seem stronger to you than everybody else's, right? That's because they're yours. But we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, don't give up. Instead, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Among other things, this means that because he became one of us, Jesus has an experiential knowledge of our weaknesses and and of our temptations that he wouldn't otherwise have. And in ways we can't fully appreciate the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and blood, has qualified him to be our, our high priest before God in ways that he wouldn't otherwise be qualified. 
And so the, the help that Jesus gives to us and the prayers that he prays for us are fueled by his experience as a flesh and blood man. And so what this means, again, it means a lot of things, but what it means, one thing, is that Jesus is not at all surprised by your failures, by your weaknesses, by your sin. He is not shocked. Jesus never says, I had no idea that she or he had the capacity to sin the way they've sinned. No, he's, ne- he's never shocked by that. You, he, he understands you just as, as comprehensively as he understood his original disciples. And he died for you anyway. He loves you anyway. He knew you exhaustively before you ever had faith. He looks at you the same way he looked as his, at his original disciples. He knew you would fail him, and yet he loved you anyway. It's an amazing thing. That's what we, re- we sang about in that song. It's reckless. That is a reckless type of love with which Jesus has loved us. It, it really is. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that this doesn't excuse our sin. The Scripture never says that because Jesus knows our failures and our sins and our weaknesses ahead of time that we're not responsible for our behavior. Scripture never says that. We are responsible, but it puts our failures and our weaknesses in this larger context of the grace and mercy of God. When you fail, when you sin, repent. Turn back to God. Learn afresh. Deepen your faith. Learn in that area what it means to walk with God. In verse 33, we we learn that Jesus gives peace and courage in the midst of troubles. We tend to think, well, if Jesus loved me, he wouldn't let me get in troubles. And that's how I'd have peace. That's how I would have courage. But after predicting the disciples' failure in verse 32, verse 33 must have been a, a powerful encouragement for the disciples. He says this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. Uh, These things is a reference to what what is recorded in John 13 through 16, what we call the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. And when we studied these chapters earlier this year during uh, the weeks leading up to Easter, we saw that, that the core promise that Jesus made to his disciples was his personal presence. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. He said, I will come to you through the person of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. We will dwell within you and we will be with you. We will be in you forever. And one of the many things that the Holy Spirit would do was give them peace. We read this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so Jesus promised them this deep, abiding, personal peace. This is the opposite of having a troubled, fearful, anxious heart. And remember that Jesus was thinking about their peace the night that he was arrested, the night before his his torture, the night before his crucifixion, and he's concerned about the disciples experiencing peace. And so the compassion of Jesus, even in that hour, is overwhelming. And he's assuring his disciples that he's leaving them a type of peace that would transcend their circumstances in this world. And Jesus said, I've spoken these things so that when you experience tribulation, you can recall this promise of my presence and you can experience 
peace. Look again at, at 1633. He contrasts what they would experience in him and what they would experience in the world. He says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. When you abide in me, you let my word abide in you, then you will have peace. But in the world, you have tribulation. And the world is a reference to the kind of the moral order, everything that's not under the reign of God. Everything, all the structures and people and and institutions that are living in opposition to God, in rebellion against God. And the disciples would soon experience that the world will oppose Jesus and his mission in a very fierce way. To a man, they would experience intense persecution. Uh, we think that, that pretty much all of them, except for John, were martyred for their faith. Um, but uh, the New Testament makes clear that this is not the rare exception. This is the norm in the Christian life. And here in the United States in these past couple centuries, I mean, we have this incredible freedom. And right now, any persecution we experience is probably an insult or rejection or something like that. Uh, But we read this about Paul's ministry in Acts 14 because in most places in the world, it's it's not that way and in most generations. But in in, uh, Acts 14, this is the way Paul's ministry was described as he traveled around to the churches that had been planted. He said, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, this was foundational teaching for a young church. This is what he said. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you're going to identify with Jesus Christ, if you're going to walk with God, you're going to experience tribulations as you enter into the kingdom of God. And when Paul talked about his own experience, his own tribulation, this is the way he described it. And he didn't just experience insults. He experienced beatings and stonings and imprisonments. But he wrote this in, in Romans 5, 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. He didn't believe that tribulation, the tribulations, the sufferings that he experienced were, in, were, were uh, meaningless. He believed that they were part of what God was doing in the world. And so he exulted in it. He, was, he found satisfaction because God was using even that. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he, he reminded them of their initial tribulation when they received uh, the word of God. And, and uh, next week, we're going to begin a six-week series in 1 Thessalonians, but we'll see this verse again. But we read this in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, they they experienced tribulation, but it was accompanied by joy because they had the Holy Spirit. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And so in this world, you will have tribulation. But notice back in John 16, 33, what Jesus commands next. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. How can we possibly take courage? How can we possibly have courage when the world is coming against us with, with this, this fierce opposition, sometimes violent opposition? How can we have courage? Because we're so strong, because we're so competent, because we know the Bible so well. He says, take courage. Why? I have overcome the world. Our courage comes from the fact 
that Jesus has already won the victory. His death and resurrection have won the victory over the world. You say, it sure doesn't look like he's got the victory. Well, when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was his declaration. His victory is not in doubt. He raised Jesus from the dead. That was his amen. That guarantees that one day the glory of God will fill the earth comprehensively. Everything else will be pushed out. Jesus will win the victory. And so our, our courage and our confidence comes from understanding that spiritual reality, that, that truth, that, that solid confidence, and letting it bleed back into the way we experience tribulations in this world. And our faith grows when we allow that reality to inform how we think about our trials and our tribulations. What are the trials you're, you're experiencing right now? What are, what are the hardships that you're experiencing? Maybe they keep you awake at night. Maybe they just bring sorrow to your soul when you think about what might happen if this situation continues. I want you to think about that, that tribulation or that trial as I, I give this example. Many of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, a week ago marked the 50th anniversary of her spinal cord injury. It was a diving accident that left her uh, quadriplegic. And on her 50th anniversary, she wrote this amazing article. Maybe some of you have read it. But she talked about what God had taught her. And she actually makes statements like, I would rather have lose the use of my arms and my hands and know Jesus than be able to walk and use my body correctly and not know him. She has this courage. She has this, this faith she has this confidence, and she has this voice that, that few of us have because we haven't experienced what she's experienced. But she has this integrity and this authority because she's gone through this suffering so, so well. And I want to read a paragraph of this article that she published. And, uh, yeah, just, just powerful. She writes this. She says, back in the 70s, my Bible study friend Steve Estes shared 10 little words that set the course for my life. Here are 10 words that set the course of her life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Steve explained it in this way. Johnny, God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Johnny summarized again, 10 words have set the course of my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. See, she doesn't understand why it all happened. She can't figure it all out. She certainly doesn't blame it on God. But she believes that in his, in his kindness and in his sovereignty, he, he lets some things happen because he wants to accomplish some deeper thing that we may not even understand.
because she keeps her eyes fixed on Jesus. She has faith. She has courage. And God uses her to accomplish amazing things. You would not wish that on anybody. I talked to somebody this week who had a very similar injury, and his, his perspective was very similar. He says, yeah, I, I hate this, but God uses it. He uses it in my life, uses it in other people's lives. He has this contentment. He has this courage. He has this peace that comes from Jesus himself. It comes from fixing his eyes on Jesus. You're probably aware when you experience trials, when you experience tribulation, it can push you one of two different directions. It can humble you and it can, can make you more sensitive to the Spirit of God, it can push you to trust Him in deeper ways, or it can make you more bitter and cynical. It can harden you. And that's what will happen if you fix your eyes on your problems. If you meditate day and night on all the things that God hasn't done for you, instead of thanking Him for what He has done for you, if you are obsessed with all the wrongs that you have suffered in your life, you will be a fearful, anxious, contentious person. I know I've done that far too much, far too much in my life. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, he will humble us and we will see the goodness of God and he will, will teach us things. He will give us a peace. He will give us comfort. He will give us a courage that really doesn't come in any other way. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Your faith will grow. You know, one of the gifts that, that God gives to the church is the Lord's table. And uh, it's a time. It's built into the rhythm of the church. And here at Faith, we, we celebrate the Lord's table the first Sunday of each month. It's built into the rhythm of the church where we stop we slow down and we bring ourselves honestly before God. We, we bring ourselves before God in light of the body and blood of Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is, is, not, is don't check out during the, the Lord's table. Use this time. Uh, think, about, think about the ways you failed him. Think about the ways you have sinned. And remember that he's not shocked by that. He doesn't condemn you for that, but you might need to repent and, and see it in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus or the trials that you're experiencing, the tribulations you're experiencing. See them in light of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. His victory is not in doubt. It's not in question. He has overcome the world. Let that bleed back into your very circumstances. Let it give you courage for this day and this week. Well, I'd like for those who are going to serve the Lord's table to come forward now, and I'd like to pray. Uh, if you are a follower of Christ, if you believe in him alone, we would invite you to, to celebrate the Lord's table with us. Uh, we'll pass the bread first. If you need allergen-free bread, you'll find that in the center of the tray. But hold the bread until everyone's received, and then we will uh, eat together. And the same with the cup. Heavenly Father, we bring ourselves before you now. Uh, God, we... we bring our failures before you, our sins before you. We want to see it in light of the cross. And God, we, we bring our trials and our tribulations before you. God, we don't want to deal with these things in our own strength and just with our own insights. God, we want to, to see our, 
tribulations in light of the victory of Jesus. And so, God, we, we pray you'd give us the will and give us the, the courage to be uh, honest before you now. We invite you to do uh, what needs to be done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.